Let me hear you say, that's my king. That was pretty weak. Let me hear you say, that's my king. That's my king, isn't he? Jesus Christ, King of Kings, that's my king. And S.M. Lockridge uh, presents a beautiful message there. And when I think of what he did, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking for him, I believe for him, it was easy to say all that. You know why? Because when you're close to the king, you're able to describe the king. When you're close to your savior, you can describe your savior. When it's your best friend, you can talk all day about your best friend. But if you don't know him, you can't talk about him. But if you know him, you can talk all day about him. Amen? Who is your king? Who is Jesus to you? I mean, if you could use one word to describe Jesus Christ, what would it be? Would you use any of the words that were just used there? Would it be Lamb of God? Would it be King of Kings? Would it be Savior? Would it be Lord? Because once you proclaim who he is, once those words leave the lips and leave your mouth, we can't just talk about it. We've got to do something about it. We've got to live it out. Open up your Bibles, if you would, please, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. In the book of John, we've been studying it, and we've been at the woman at the well for two weeks, and, and, and Easter's next week, and it's like, well, aren't we going to get ourselves ready for next week? And this is part of it. This is part of it. Today is Palm Sunday. And, uh, and part of what comes out of this last part of the woman at the well, we, we need to hear before we worship next week. Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 4, starting in verse 39, it says this. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. Well, when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in the village. So he stayed there for two days, long enough for many to hear his message and believe. Now listen to verse 42. This is the key verse. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Key verse, key phrase. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. This woman's life was changed, it was transformed, it was broken, but it was made new. And she ran off to the village. The first, is what it seems like, missionary, the first evangelist, was a woman of questionable character. And she changed the whole village. And they came to Jesus, and they saw for themselves who this Jesus was. And they listened, and they worshipped. And then they came to a conclusion As he looked at her and said, it's no longer what you said. It's what we now know to be true. He is indeed what? The Savior of the world. Not just Jerusalem. Not just Samaria. Not just the Middle East. But the world. For the Jews, they were thinking, we're looking for a king, a Savior for Jerusalem. For the Samaritans, they wanted a savior of Samaria. For the Greeks and the Romans, they wanted a savior as well. They, they all want saviors. But the savior came as a lamb. As a lamb. John chapter 1, verse 29, we read that what? When John the Baptist first sees Jesus, he goes, Behold, what? The Lamb of God. That's how we're first introduced to Jesus. Besides, in John 1, 1, he's introduced as the Word. But the first introduction by a human, by a 
a witness, so to say, was John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And have, you, have we ever pondered what that means? I know it's been a couple months since John 1. But have you ever pondered really what that means? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The, the sins of the world who all these people, these Samaritans who said, He's the Savior of the world. And John the Baptist says, He's taken away the sins of the world. Israel's religious culture always included a sacrificial lamb. Abel sacrificed a lamb, if you remember, all the way going back to the Garden of Eden. And Abel sacrificed a lamb to receive God's blessing. And then you go through time and Abraham sacrificed lambs. And, and at the temple, the daily ritual of sacrificing lambs took place. To say Jesus is the Lamb of God... Right away, everyone could picture a sacrificial substitute, an innocent substitute to pay for the sins of the world. But there's more. You go back to when God established things in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? Sacrificed an animal and gave them skins to cover their bodies. And we have our first sacrifice, the first shedding of blood. And from that time, it was one lamb for each person. When you fast forward in time and the Jews were slaves in Egypt and you remember Moses came to deliver them. The night before they left Egypt, they celebrated what we call the Passover. When they took the lamb and they sacrificed the lamb, they ate the lamb, but they took the blood and they put it on the doorpost. It was one lamb per family. And then the exodus took place and the people went out to Mount Sinai and God gave them the law. Gave them the Ten Commandments. And he included instructions for the Day of Atonement. And he said the high priest on that day would sacrifice a lamb for this nation. And maybe you're seeing the progression here. It was one lamb for one person, one lamb for one family, then one lamb for one nation. And now it's one lamb for the world, the savior of the world. There's this progression you see through the Bible. And so the cross at Calvary, Jesus died. God's lamb died for the world, for us. Palm Sunday, today is the day when we recognize that the Lamb of the world rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was that day, Palm Sunday, when Jesus offered himself as that sacrifice for the world. See, when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, what we need to understand was thousands of Passover lambs were coming in at the same time as he was. As all these lambs that were going to be sacrificed at Passover came in on that day, Jesus came in. The Lamb of God came in the same day as all those other sacrificial lambs. But this was the Lamb that was going to be slain for the world. Not just a person, a family, or a nation, but the world. The imagery is complete because according to the timing that when Jesus died on the cross, it was the same time these same families were killing their lambs and sacrificing them. The timing is incredible. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of not just one person, one family, one nation, but takes away the sins of the world. He came to die for you and I. He entered Jerusalem that day, not just as a king, but as the Lamb of God. But as the Lamb of God. If I were to ask you to define love, how would you define love? 
Now, there might be some young couples in here that are like, oh, we are so in love. And there might be some of you that have been married in here for years and you're like, oh, we're still in love. Give or take a day or here or there, right? Some of you have a love for friends and family and you have love for things. And we, we all talk about love, right? But how do you define love? How do you find a love for God? How do you define God's love for you? How do we know that God loves us? Because our view and our definition of love can sometimes be warped and changed around that sometimes we, we, we view God loving us the same way we love him, which is completely wrong because of the way we define love. So how does God love us? How do we define that? It's so hard, isn't it? You can't find it taught in books today. You can't find it in philosophy and teaching today. You won't find it in other religions. We only find the love of God in Christianity. It's only within the the faith of Christianity and God's word that we discover and define how God loves us. We find the answer at the cross. You might as well go ahead and just stamp the word love right across it. As much it was a torture for the Romans came up with, God says, let me define love for you, and he shows us the cross. Just because we say, and we say it all the time, God loves you. How many times do we say that? God loves you. Oh, God loves you. It almost sounds cliche at times, doesn't it? Oh, God loves you. And we say it all the time, but just because we say it doesn't mean that he loves us because, let's face it, mankind, we're liars. Sometimes the truth is not in us. Sometimes we exaggerate things. Sometimes the things we say are false. So because we know that as a human being we can say false things, if somebody says God loves you, well, you also said this and that was false. So is this true or false? So just because I say it doesn't mean it, does it? Maybe we can look at nature. And I've said this before. You look at the sunrise, you look at the sunset, you look at the mountains, you look at the Grand Canyon, and you say, look at what God's created. He loves us, right? But then we also said this, what? A storm, a tornado, A hurricane, a tidal wave can be destructive. And that's the same nature that we were just praising God for. But now we think, does God really love us if he allows a tornado to do this? How do we know that God loves us? Let's go back to what we just started with. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, the King of Kings, died for us. That's how we answer that question about God loving us. It doesn't have to come from the words of my lips. We go to Scripture. We go to God's Word. Two verses, Romans 5, 8 and John 3, 16. Two verses many of you have committed to memory. You know these Scriptures. But look what's underlined very carefully. But God showed His what? His great love. Yes. How does He show His great love? The sunrise. While we were still sinning, God sent a sunrise. No. While we were still sinners, somebody told me God loves me. No. But God showed his great love that while we were still sinners, what happened? He sent Jesus Christ to die for us. That while we were still sinning, we could find a way to have, be saved for salvation. 
John 3.16 says what? For God so what? He what? Loved the world. That he told us. That he gave us beautiful mountains. That he created the Grand Canyon. No. For God so loved the world that he what? One big four letter word. He what? He gave. His one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You want to know how God loves you? The fact that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. The Lamb of God. On that day, Palm Sunday, the day today that we, you know, you rewind 2,000 years ago. That day, God said, if you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to demonstrate my love to you one more time. Because my son's going to come riding in on a donkey. People are going to praise him. But as John said, behold, the Lamb of God who saves the world. Oh, it was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen. Scripture tells us it's going to happen. Let me read three scriptures to you. If you want to, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Because every verse I'm going to read is just the next chapter in, next chapter into the book of Matthew. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew 16, I'm going to start in verse 21. And it says this, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. So I want you to think about this. Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, rewind back a few days, possibly a week here. And Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples. and says, hey, I just want to let you know that we're going to be going into Jerusalem here in a couple of days. And I'm going to suffer some terrible things. And it's going to be at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He said this, he would be killed, and on the third day he would be raised from the dead. So days before he gets on that donkey to go into Jerusalem, he goes, hey, I want to let you know, I'm going to suffer. And he gives us details. The religious leaders are going to be the ones that are going to be doing this. It's not going to be some, some robbers, some thieves. I'm not going to get mugged by somebody in a dark alley. It's going to be the religious leaders. They're the ones that are going to grab me. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to be killed. And then he's very specific. He goes, but on the third day, on the third day, I'm going to rise up from the dead. And you wonder what's going on in these disciples' minds? Like, oh, Jesus. It's crazy talk. A lot of, you're missing some sleep, right? Look at chapter 17. Turn the page, go to chapter 17, verse 22. He says this. After they gathered again in Galilee. So here's another time. Maybe a day or two later. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. So again, he goes, oh, by the way, this is how it's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. Somebody I know, somebody I love is going to turn me in. And he goes on to say again, verse 23, he will be killed, but on the third day he'll be raised from the dead. And the disciples were filled with grief. This time now it starts to set in a little bit more. And the disciples are, this way this can't be. Because now they're filled with grief. Look at verse, chapter 20, verse 17. Starting verse 17, it says, And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside privately and he said to them, This is what's going to happen. Listen. 
verse 18, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. So they're on their way right now. And the son of man will be betrayed to the leading priest and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans. Now he's going to be even more specific than he's been with the last two conversations. He says, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged with a whip. I'm going to be crucified. But on the third day, I'll be raised from the dead. They're, they're, they're walking on their way right now to Jerusalem, and he's telling them this. This is three times now. Three times Jesus tells them that following him wasn't just about setting up a kingdom. I'm not going to have this throne in Jerusalem, guys. <laughs> there, there's not going to be a palace there for me. I'm not going to be ruling, and you're not going to be my sidekicks. Matter of fact, in that same conversation, just a few verses later, the mother of James and John, oh, this is so typical, this still happens today, comes up to Jesus and is like, hey, um, can we talk about my boys? <laughs> They're so special. Can one of them be on your left and one of them be on your right? Hey, coach, my kid's pretty special. I think you ought to be the captain of the team. Hey, uh, teacher, you know, my kid's really good, really smart. Got to be sitting up there close, getting the A's. Hey, band director, hey, music, you know, my kid should get the lead, should get the solo because they're so good. Parents, we still do that today, don't we? Sort of vine our way in to get our kids up there, you know, like, let's put my kids up there because they're so special. The, this mother of James and John, these guys are, are older, right? And that mom is still right there saying, Jesus they need to be right there next to you, in your left and on your right, to the most powerful disciples. They deserve it. What did Jesus say to this mom? He explained to her that the ruler of the world, of the, the rulers of this world work one way, but Jesus works another. This world is like, yes, position, power. Jesus goes, not, not, with, not with my kingdom. It's a little bit different. He said in verse 26 of that same chapter, but among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. And even the son of man, now he's talking about himself, came into what? Came not to what? Be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus goes, hey, listen, mom, I, I appreciate you, your love for these boys. But listen, that's not the way my kingdom works. My kingdom, I didn't come here to be served. I came to serve others. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to learn to serve. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to learn to be persecuted. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to understand what it means to be in pain for my name. Everyone wants to rule in a kingdom, right? But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to carry a cross. Expect to serve. Oh, difficult lessons in life, right? Endure hardships. Face perseverance or persecution and serve others. But that's the way of Christianity, isn't it? See, a lot of us think becoming a Christian is all about, you know, what? Rainbows and ponies and flowers or something. I don't know. It's, it's all good, you know. Jesus loves me, this I know. And we sing and we hold hands and we sing Kumbaya. And nobody sings Kumbaya anymore. But that was a good old song back in the day, right? But it isn't that way anymore, is it? We sing other songs now. And we're like, oh, Christians. But here's the truth about Christianity. Christianity is that. We have that peace in God. But there's also persecution. There's also enduring hardships. There's also the thing of serving. But we don't serve and we don't endure persecution with frowns on our faces. We do it the joy of the Lord within us. 
We're able to do this because he is with us. His spirit works with us. As soon after this discussion, Jesus and his disciples, right after, you know, they're, they're wrapping up this talk, and, and Jesus is like, yeah, why don't you run ahead and get a couple of donkeys for me? And he sends a couple of his disciples off. And as soon after that, the day which we call Palm Sunday, the beginning of the Holy Week, they're getting ready to walk into, and he's getting ready to ride into Jerusalem. I want you to think about this. Jesus lived 33 years. His ministry started at the age of 30, so he's ministering for about three years. So when you read the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're reading about his ministry of about a three-year span, plus a few chapters with his birth and the genealogies and those things, right? But when it gets to the Holy Week, Palm Sunday to Resurrection The Gospels have a lot to say. The Gospels basically this. If you look at the book of Matthew, one-fourth of this book is devoted to this part, this holy week. In the book of Mark, one-third. The book of Luke, one-fifth of it. In the book of John, John gives half of his book to this week. You know, it's taken us a couple months to get through the first four chapters of John. And... We're not even halfway through yet, and John spends half of his book just on this week alone. An incredible focus on the most important moment in the history of Christianity. We love celebrating Christmas. I love celebrating. I love Christmas, right? But Easter is the most important, significant part of Christianity. Without the resurrection, our faith is like everybody else's. But with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it sets our faith apart from everyone else. The Gospels are not only the book in the Bible that talks about this special week. You can go back to the prophets from the Old Testament. They proclaimed what was going to happen. You go into the other books in the New Testament, especially Paul. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's throughout the whole scripture, but the Gospels obviously have the most, right? Well, the ride into Jerusalem, the entering of the Lamb of God, has been planned before earth was ever created. It's hard to fathom, isn't it? It wasn't spontaneous. It wasn't like, oh, hey, I got an idea. Let's just write in. This has been planned out before earth was created. It was planned out before man was ever around. Before sin was going to totally mess up and darken our world, God already had a plan, which included this moment. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Let's read the story. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethage, the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, the king is coming. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. So here we go. The Lamb of God is entering Jerusalem at Passover. And listen, he didn't need to ride a donkey into the city. Think about this. He's already walked the entire distance from Galilee. Matter of fact, um, this is the only place where we read in Scripture about Jesus ever riding anything. 
But like Old Testament prophets said, his action is going to be symbolized. It gives us something meaningful. So Zechariah, we read in the book of Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet, he foretold this. He said, this is going to happen. Years before it ever he said this is what's going to happen. So we have here the coming of God's king. But he did not come riding in on a war horse. Kings rode horses. Not donkeys. But the donkey symbolized riding when he was bringing in peace. There will be a time in future history, and you can read about this in Revelation chapter 19, when Christ will ride in on that war horse. And he will bring judgment. But right now he's coming in on a donkey with peace. And the people welcome him. Let's read on verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the people all around were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David, or Hosanna. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. Now we go back different translation. And the Hebrew word was here was Hosanna, or the Greek word Hosanna, and the uh, Hebrew for that was often translated, save us now. These people, what they were doing, in the book of Psalms, there are six psalms that were used and sung during the time of Passover. So as you were doing the Passover meal, you would sing these psalms. One was Psalm 118. Psalm 118 contained this, save us now, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. And that's what the Passover meal Here's Jesus riding in on a donkey, and they are singing this same song that would be reserved for the time of the Passover meal. Save us now. Save us now. Now, did these people realize the Lamb of God was entering Jerusalem? Did they know he was coming to actually save them and not rule them from the walls of Jerusalem? I'm going to say no, because they all wanted a physical king with a scepter and a staff and to rule over them and politically lead them, and that was not what Jesus was going to do. Look at verse 10. It says, The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, It is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is this man? We go back to the question we first asked when we started the sermon today. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? They got fired up. Hosanna king. They were, they were ready to worship. But that emotion turned, didn't it? Because a couple of days later, these same people, most likely some of the same, were yelling what? Crucify him. Crucify him. You know, we will do the same unless we truly answer who Jesus is correctly. If we can answer who Jesus is correctly, we will not be shouting crucify him. But we must answer who Jesus is correctly. We may not say crucify him, but here's the thing. Many of us, the way we live our lives selfishly, we want to do our own thing, which means to do our own thing, we have to get Jesus out of the way. We may not say crucify him, but we'll tell him to get out of the way. You might as well just say crucify him. If he's your Jesus, if he is your king, if he is your savior, then with our lips, we must praise him. With our lips, we must be a witness and a testimony. When's the last time you truly said, praise God out loud? When's the last time you verbally told somebody about your faith? If he is your savior, it should be coming off your mouth easily. You're never embarrassed of your best friend, right? You're never embarrassed maybe of a family member. You love to talk about somebody that you love. Oh, we talk about them all the time. You hear me talk about my boys all the time. 
They get so embarrassed, right? Oh, you talk about them in your sermon. Way to embarrass them again, right? I can't help it. I love them. Just embarrass them again, right? But that's the way it is with Jesus too. Because we love him, we can't stop talking about him. If Jesus is our king, if Jesus is the lamb of God, the evidence will be right there in our words, in our actions. C.S. Lewis wrote this. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him for a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He was not left. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who is this Jesus to you? If Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Savior of this world, the Lamb of God, the King of Kings, then let's worship him that way. He is, period. He's more than we know, more than we can understand. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy, amen? This week, you know, just look for maybe some emails coming from me from the church I want to I help you if I can on a daily or every other day basis just get you focused on this Holy Week, on who Jesus is. Because if we can get our mind focused and our hearts focused on Christ, next week's resurrection celebration will be so much more meaningful. But you don't have to wait to talk to people about Jesus. Let it start coming from your lips now. I'm going to ask the elders to, to come in and, and uh, our leaders to come forward. We're going to take communion together. As we take communion, it's it's a time of worship. And we look forward to when Jesus was getting ready to celebrate the Passover. It was at this time that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. and, And then in Jerusalem, he's with his disciples in the upper room. And in the upper room, they have, they share the Passover meal together. And and they partake in what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. A time of remembrance. A time of us now looking back and saying, He sacrificed. The symbols of the broken body and the shed blood are a reminder of the wondrous love of Jesus Christ. Laying down His life for me. Laying down His life for you. And it's necessary for us to pause and confess our personal sin and count the cost. It says every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. We do this knowing that he's going to come back just as he promised. The Lord's Supper was instituted by night, as we said, uh, by Christ on the night of his betrayal. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, I invite you to observe that with us today. If you're in here today, and you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, I invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper with us. Parents, if you've got children in here, I just want to remind you, this isn't for anyone. As I said, these are for those who have confessed their sins, who have believed in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. If your children have made that confession, then yes, they can join us with this. If you're taking communion with us, as the elders and leaders pass the trays, Take the bread and then take the cup and just hold on to it until they come back up front. And 
I will pray and then we'll partake together. they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and asked God's blessing on it. And he broke it into pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, take it for this is my body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now in worship, remembering what you did for us. Your love revealed. Your love given to us through your son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who rode into Jerusalem all the other sacrificial lambs came in the Lamb of God came in to save the world God remember we remember that we read about it and we do this Lord in remembrance of you Lord forgive us of our sins that brought you to the point of sacrificing your son God we thank you for the sacrifice, we thank you for the pain that you went through, the breaking of your body for us. 
We do this in remembrance of you, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. scriptures continue to say and he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it and he gave it to them and they all drank from it let's pray Heavenly Father again we thank you for this time in which we remember the sacrifice of your son for the blood that was shed at the cross the blood in which you've made a new covenant with us the blood that washes away all of our sin. The blood that now allows us to have a new life with you. We thank you for that, God. We remember it. And with sorrow, we say, we're sorry. But with joy, we say, thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you. 
for your broken body and for your shed blood. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Did is well with my soul. Would you please stand? It is well. It is well with my soul. Before we sing our last song, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. We thank you, Lord, for your love, and we thank you that we can proclaim who you are and who your Son is, who Jesus Christ is. We don't have to question. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt who your Son is. God, thank you that we can worship you in truth today, worship you in song, worship you in prayer, and worship you through communion. God, we sing to you now, proclaiming who you are. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.